It's a pleasure to be here today. Before I begin, I'd like to start with another word of prayer, if you'd please bow your heads. Dear Lord, I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to anoint my lips. Lord, please help me to say the words that you would have me to say. Let these be your words and not my words. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message today is The New Censorship. And really, there's nothing new about censorship. It's been going on for a very, very long time. But it is new to us. As Americans, we've lived here in this country of freedom, a country where freedom of speech has reigned supreme for uh, perhaps two centuries. But now we're starting to see that ebb away. At the church that I, I come from, Advent Hope, uh, in Loma Linda, um, on our podium we have 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 2, written on the, on the podium. And I, I'd like to start by reading something from that passage. I'm going to start in verse 1. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's writing to Timothy at a time where he knows that um, his ministry is going to be... Um, waning and that Timothy is going to have to um, pick up and, and continue on where Paul has left off. And so Paul writes Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. You know, I, I hear Paul saying this and I think to myself, you know, Paul would really understand this probably better than, than any of the other apostles. You know, because Paul experienced this. He experienced it on the other side of the... Uh, of the debate, so to speak. So if you have to remember how Paul actually became a Christian, if you go back in the scriptures, you go back to Acts um, chapter 6, um, Stephen is being brought um, before the authorities, and Paul is there. I'd like to, I'd like to read that. Uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Then there arose a certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and all of them Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. So Stephen had created quite a stir. There was a lot of people that are dispute with him. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now there's something about this, you know, Stephen's just one man and he's going up against all of these different synagogues yet they weren't able to resist him. Why is that? Because Stephen spoke the truth. And truth is powerful. Truth is powerful and it's irresistible. So how did they respond when he spoke? It says, Then they suborned men, which said... Now that word suborned, we use that... The first time I actually learned what it meant was when I went to law school. Um, there's a crime called suborning perjury. And suborning perjury is if, a, if, is if someone brings someone into the court to tell a lie. 
That's exactly what's going on here. Then they suborned men which said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now think about this. Stephen is there. He's speaking the truth. It's cutting to their heart. It's irresistible. They see his face. His face is like that of an angel. But what do they do? Do they repent of their ways? No. No, they continue on. Verse uh, Acts 7, verse 1. Then said the high priest, are these things so? Now, it's interesting. The high priest here, if he'd have been a good lawyer, he wouldn't have asked a question like that. He's making a tactical mistake. Whenever you have an opponent and you can't control really what they say, you never leave him with this open-ended question because, because if you have an open question, you might get a big answer. You might get more than you bargained for. And so when you're cross-examining a witness, you always just have this small fact and then you follow it up with, isn't it so? Isn't this true that you're doing this, Stephen? But no, he says, are these things so? He's asking an open-ended question. And what does that lead to? It leads to a whole chapter in the Bible of Stephen's defense. Now, it's a long chapter. I won't take the time to read it here, but I'll just give you a little bit of a summary. Stephen basically said that the Jews placed too much emphasis on their heritage and not upon obedience. The Jews, you see, were proud of who they were, but they weren't concerned with what they were doing. He accused them of killing the prophets. You know, when I think about what is going on today, I see some parallels. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of being able to take pride in who you are. What group do you belong to? What, what can you claim? Who are you? It's very similar to the Jews, but not, not taking pride in what you do. You get it backwards when you do that. You know, we, well, we shouldn't be taking pride of anything because everything we do is, is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Christ. But this emphasis on who you are and not, not what you do, not on, on obedience, is, uh, is not unique to Stephen's time, and we start to see this today. Going to the end of the chapter, Acts 7, verses 54 to 60. When they had heard these things, they were cut to the heart. You see that truth, cutting to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And, and, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Now think about this. Where are we in earth's history today? We're right at the very end of time, and where do we believe Jesus is? 
He's in the holy place with God. And there's going to come a time in just the very near future when, when Jesus will stand up. And we're giving this same message. It's the same message, really, that, that, that Stephen is giving because the judgment hour had come for the Jews. And this was the end. Their, their dispensation was over. So how did they respond? Verse 57, Then they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. I could just see them, ah, yeah, yeah, you know, stopping their ears, right? And they ran upon him with one accord. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. So there was Paul, still named Saul. And he saw this, and he knew this. And they stoned Stephen. And Stephen was calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this into their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, I'm, I'm impressed with Stephen. He set such a great example because if you look at his attitude, how did Stephen die? He died just as Christ did. And he died deserving the name Christian. You know, is Stephen the first uh, martyr? Some say he is, but... I don't know, we might be splitting hairs here because there's John the Baptist as well. But we see how the first, or perhaps the second, the first Christian martyred died. You know, what was Stephen doing? Stephen was preaching. He was preaching the word. And this is how God has designed the gospel to go forth. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 19 to 21, Paul has this to say. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So Paul is starting to say here and explain how it is that we become saved. We become saved by the foolishness of preaching. But Satan, Satan doesn't like this. Satan is the killer of souls, and he likes censorship why because it's a shortcut to power and it's a hedge around falsehood it's a hedge it's a way to maintain one's power so why falsehood well satan is the father of lies and if you look at the root of satan's rebellion was his lies and you look satan cannot stand the truth and when you can't stand truth you love censorship but Christ, Christ is the opposite of this. Christ is open, and he's against censorship. And you can see that this is, censorship has nothing to do with what Christ stands for. If you look at his words in Matthew 10, verses 26 to 28, Christ says this, Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness... 
that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So look at Christ. He's saying here, nothing will be covered. Nothing, nothing will be covered that shall not be revealed. And he says, preach it from the housetops. I mean, preach it. And fear not him who can kill the body. I think this is something that we really need to remember. Um, one of the things, I, I do a lot of work now with religious liberty. And um, I get people calling me. Most of them are worried about losing their job. Um, now, more of the calls I get are people that can't finish their education. Uh, it seems like the most recent things are nursing students that are almost done with their program and, and they just can't finish without getting a vaccine that goes against their conscience. And, you know, um, one of the things that's disheartening to me is when someone says, they come to me and they say, Jonathan, can you fix it? Can you fix it? You know, and I'll say, well, this is what the law says and this is how we can work through with the law, but I'm, I'm here to, to warn you that um, I would expect that uh, this would take months to years to get through the court system and even then we're still not 100% sure how these things are going to turn out. And you say that to someone who's going through nursing school that's got maybe six months left. And it's interesting, you know, the law cannot really provide the justice because justice delayed is justice denied. And the most disheartening thing to me are those that just give up at that point. And I wonder, I wonder about their conscience. Christ said, fear not him who can kill the body. Don't fear those people that persecute you. But fear him who can kill body and soul. So how are people saved? How are they saved? Romans 10, verses 13 to 14. Paul says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So you look at the formula here. To be saved, you have to call upon the name of the Lord. You have to believe. In order to believe, you have to have heard. And in order to have heard, someone has to preach it to you. Paul goes on to make an allusion to, to Isaiah. I actually like the, uh, the Isaiah passage better, and so I'm going to read it from Isaiah. Isaiah 52, verses 7 to 8 says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again. They're beautiful. It's amazing. Now Paul, he's one of these guys that Sometimes he's hard to understand because he can, he writes, I don't know how to explain it, but there's something about the logic that can be just a little bit difficult, but I want to give you a key to how to understand Paul. If Paul's going to say anything important, he's going to say it more than once, and so if you didn't understand it right the first time he said it, he's going to say it again. And so in Romans 10 verse 8, he, he, uh, he gives the formula again about how people understand how people are saved. Uh, Romans 10, verses 8 to 10. 
But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. The word is in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with mouth confession is made unto salvation. So you believe in the heart. The battle is over the heart. And what is the heart? The heart can be nothing other than the conscience. The heart and the conscience are at the center of the human soul. The conscience is the place where beliefs are formed. It's the moral center of where you are. And I like to think of the conscience as being kind of the listening center. Because it's in the conscience where you hear the word of God. It's that still, small voice. But there's a danger there, too. And the danger is, is that you may sear your conscience. The Bible talks about people who sear their conscience. And how do you do that? Well, you drowned out the voice of the Lord. And maybe when you drowned it out, you drowned it, drowned it out with falsehood by exposing yourself and listening to falsehood and making yourself to believe falsehood. And that's not good because if you look to see um, how the conscience works, this is a place where there's a struggle going on and it's a struggle between good and evil. If you look here in Isaiah 1, verses 18 to 20, the Bible says this, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So God is saying, hey, Let's get together. Let's reason together. There's no place else where God can do this than in the conscience. And so the conscience is hallowed ground. It's the battleground between good and evil. And it's right there. It's the seat of your will. This is where your freedom of choice operates. And so it's been observed that freedom of conscience is the essence of religious liberty. It really is. Freedom of conscience is the essence of religious liberty. You know, we can see the battle that rages in conscience when we look at the first murder. You look at Abel. Abel's actions were a witness to Cain. Abel was doing the right things. He was, his life was a sort of sermon. And and that made Cain angry. The way the story is, is, is written, we see that God comes and talks to Cain. And the way he talks to him is the same way he talks to us in our conscience. If you look at Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, um, the scripture says this, And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. New King James says this, 
and its desire, sin's desire is for you, but you shall rule over it, or you can, or you should rule over it. Now, we know what happened to Cain. He didn't do that. He let sin take control of him. But you see, this is, this is God speaking to him, and it's just exactly the way the conscience works. You know, I, I think about God going to give this warning to, to Cain. I wonder if God gave a similar warning to Lucifer. Um, I, I think this mainly because of a, of a passage I want to read here. It's John 8, verses 43 to 45. Christ is speaking to the Pharisees. And he says to the Pharisees, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You see, the Pharisees, they had seared their conscience. And because they would seared their conscience, they couldn't even hear Christ. Now, I'm sure that they were listening. I mean, they could, they could hear in the sense that they could hear what was being said in the room, right? But they couldn't feel it. They couldn't hear it in their hearts. Christ goes on to say this, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees are definitely have this seared conscience. They can't believe him. But it's interesting what he says about Satan. Because he says Satan was a murderer from the very beginning. And he goes on to explain about how Satan was a liar and the father of all lies. And I, I just think that, and I don't know, it would be interesting to, to go to heaven and ask these questions. But, but I have a feeling that there was a time where Christ sat down with Satan and said, look, you're lying. And you don't understand right now where this is all going to go. But this is going to go towards murder. The conscience is incredibly important. And we look and we can see that the conscience, there's a connection between the conscience, between your beliefs and your actions. Beliefs will result in actions. And another thing that happens too is your actions can actually mold your beliefs because one of the things we don't like to do is we don't like to admit when we've been wrong. You know, I think uh, Scripture tells us that only God can judge the heart. But I think of that time in the, in the millennium when we will be sitting as judges with God. And I'm not sure exactly what we're going to see, but I would say that I believe that just watching the actions when you can truly see every last thing that we will be there with God, that we will also be able to judge the conscience. Well, I'm going to shift gears here. Um, I want to ask you a riddle. Who am I? I'm going to ask a riddle. Who am I? I am mortal but I can live, live forever so long as no one kills me. I am very wealthy, so wealthy that you may not be able to count my wealth. I have many workers by different names, whether they be slaves, servants, or employees. Who am I? 
It's an interesting question. When you go to law school, you start to learn some of these things. The answer is, I'm a corporation. I can live forever. There's something going on with this world. Why do I, why do I bring this up? Freedom in this country is incredibly fragile. In fact, freedom in the world is incredibly fragile. If you look over the entire course of human history, the moments where you can find real freedom are so small that if you were to make a graph, you wouldn't even see it on the graph at all. The first place where you had full political, full religious liberty is here in America. And we can look at it, I mean, really, it starts with Roger Williams is the first time it gets codified into rules, into law. So he's the 1640s. So look at the entire history of the world. You get to the 1640s, the first time, come to the United States, and we get to have freedom. Ask this question, what is the purpose of the United States? Now, that's sort of a trick question, because you know, hopefully if I were to ask that question, someone would ask, well, what do you mean, Jonathan? What are you really asking here? What, you know, one question, one way to answer it is, what is our purpose today? But another way is just saying, well, what purpose were we founded on? And if you look at what we were founded on, our purpose was religious liberty, religious freedom. And you look at it, the whole reason why Roger Williams created Rhode Island was for religious liberty. And then when you look at the fighting and everything that went on with the, between um, the colonies and the problems that were going on in the colonies and the, the Revolutionary War, when it got all done and it came time to actually found our nation, they adopted the principles that Roger Williams had in Rhode Island. And what were those principles all about? They were all about religious liberty. And it comes from a guy who is a pastor. You know, I have friends, I've been making friends as I've been working with this whole vaccine mandate issues. These are secular people. And they tell me, they say, they come to me and they say, Jonathan, you know, I feel a little sheepish about, about trying to exert my religious liberty rights because I'm not much of a believer. And I look at them and I say, you know what? Every liberty that we have in this country, all the important liberties, they all came from religious liberty. Let me tell you about it. And I tell them the story about uh, Roger Williams and I say, you have the right to, to, to exert these liberties. They're all based on religion, all of them. And you look at the United States, because we started off with this idea of religious liberty, but it became very obvious during Roger Williams' time that it included all sorts of liberty. And you look, once you start to get religious liberty, you get all kinds of freedom all over the place. And, you know, nowadays, if you ask someone, they might try to say, well, John Locke, he's the one that told all about this. But when you look, Locke is really just copying Roger Williams. It's amazing when you study Roger Williams' life. It all goes back to this one guy who's a Puritan, and he's getting this from reading the Bible. That's where our freedoms come from. Back to the corporation, though. What about the corporation? Well, where's the word come from? If you, if you know Latin, you know there's this idea of a body, the corpus, right? And so it's based on the idea, the, the word comes corp, it's a body, right? And, and, and what is it? Well, when you study corporations in law school, um, 
I don't know how far we go back, but we couldn't go back more than 100, 150 years um, looking at the history of corporations. It, it, it's very interesting, you know, corporations, it's totally changed the, the law, the way they work. Um, nowadays, anybody can go and spend anywhere from 40 to $400, and you can have your own corporation if you know what you're doing, or you can pay $2,500 and have a lawyer make it for you. But whatever the case, you've got a corporation for just asking. All you've got to do is come up with a name. But in the old days, you couldn't get a corporation. It took an act of parliament to give you a corporation. And, really, and, and the only reason why they give it to anyone was because you were going to perform some particular service that, that either parliament or the crown wanted you to do. And that's where you got your corporations. But corporations actually go back even further because actually um, one of the definitions of corporations is persons gathered together in a body for some purpose. That's what a corporation is. That's, that's the, at its, its very root definition. But you go back and you can look and see what's the first corporation on earth and where does, where does corporate law really actually come from? Well, guess what? The first corporation that fits these definitions is the church. And when you look, the first time the church really formulated itself like a corporation, it's really the Catholic church. I got to be careful. I don't mean to be spreading, uh, saying fighting words here and everything like that. But you look at the corporation; it's 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 led by a pope, and and you look at at, at the church. I mean, at, at the Catholic Church. You look at corporations. What is their purpose? Their purpose is globalism. Their purpose is to rule the world. They know no bounds. They're immortal. Yeah, it's the same purpose that Rome had. Rome was a master of ruling the world. And you see this still handed down through the Roman church. So what are the hallmarks of this? Um, there's a great book. Uh, it was written by Piercy McGann, one of the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist church. I think it's called Peril to the Republic of the United States something like that. That's a close approximation of the title. And, and in it, he, he talks about the essence of America versus maybe with him, he's talking more about America versus the monarchies that we rebelled against. But in the process, he talks a lot about the Declaration of Independence. And I want to read the Declaration of Independence because one of the things we don't do enough today is we talk about the constitution but but the constitution is something we've decided now is a living document and so we change it a lot and then some of the stuff that gets said about the constitution you'd be like wow is that in there i don't see that at all you know and everything's getting changed but they don't spend a lot of time reading the declaration of independence when i was in law school i don't think it was mentioned once um, but the declaration of independence is actually what was said just before the constitution was written in. It really goes to the founding rationale for our country. And if you, if you always read the Constitution through the lens of the Declaration of Independence, uh, well, we'll see here. Let me read something to you. I'm going to read a short passage out of it. It says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This is the most amazing formulation of government the world has ever seen, ever. 
and we're moving away from it. Let's pick it apart. First of all, they're talking about truth. We hold these truths to be self-evident. You can't even talk about truth today, hardly. Everybody's in this postmodern relativist world, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So if we're created, we have a creator, right? They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. One of the big problems in the world today is kind of on... The big problem is, is that governments today are saying, no, 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 no. We give you your rights. We will say when you have the right to do this or to do that. You ha- we'll say when you have the right to go in, when to go out. It's a completely different mindset than our, than our Declaration of Independence. So, so we are created with these rights. And then <clears throat> it says what those rights are. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's interesting because this puts everybody on an equal playing field, right? And then it says this, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So we say right there where the rights of the government come from. They're not held by the government by some divine right. They're coming from us, the people. And if we don't give it to them, then they don't have it. Now, this is, this is fighting words to the spirit of the age that we have today with all of these uh, different governments that are saying, no, 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 you can only do this if we say you can do this, and you can't do this, and, and don't, don't question us. When you look at this, this is actually based on God's government. When you think about it for a second. In the monarchy system or any other form of government, you have someone at the top saying like, hey, no, I'm better than everybody else and I'm going to tell you what you can and can't do, right? That's everything else besides this. But look at God's government. God's government is completely based upon the consent of the governed because in order to be part of God's government, it's all based on love. And you can't have love without consent because if there's no consent there, I got news for you. It's not love. And so when we're a part of God's government, we are part of a government of love. We love him and he loves us. And in that, for, in, in, that, in that place of love is consent. And when we consent, then God rules over us. It's when Satan refused to consent that he was kicked out of God's government. Empire, though, says the opposite. Empire goes and it plants its flag in someone else's land and it says, I will rule you. And when it does that, it is saying, I am better than you. And you know, one of the things that's really sad is in some ways America is becoming an imperial power. And when it becomes an imperial power, it's making an image to the beast but it's also destroying its own declaration of independence because it is refuting the very spirit of America. So that's the Declaration of Independence. Let's look at the United States Constitution. I'm guessing there's probably no one here that can recite the Constitution, including myself. But there is one part of it that is more important than any other part of the Constitution. And that 
is the First Amendment. Now, I want to tell you something about Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote, the, the, wrote this, said, uh, wrote the Bill of Rights, said this. He said this about the First Amendment. The only reason why we have the First Amendment, he said the First Amendment is the work and life of Roger Williams. It all goes back to this purity that says we need to have religious freedom. What does the First Amendment say? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the pe people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or bridging the freedom of speech. Man, that is the most important part of the U.S. Constitution. If you look at everything else in the Constitution, it all is there to kind of support this. Because we know if we have freedom of speech, then we can work through everything else. And so that is really at the heart. And you look at it, it's from this liberty that all the other liberties exist. You know, we think of other countries as being like us. Maybe even the Canadians are pretty similar, right? But do they have this right? They don't. You can be a Canadian and come to the United States and you can, you can say something here in Canada. This happened. person came here and denied the Holocaust. By the way, the... the they just denied the figures, the numbers. They went back to Canada. I think it was six months or nine months. I can't remember anymore what they got to serve for what they said here. This is a fragile freedom. This is a very, very fragile freedom. And when you go overseas and you talk to people, you'll find out that they think Americans are crazy to have so much freedom. But you know, we are that city on the hill. We are the light of liberty. And really, it all came from Protestantism. It's all Protestantism. So what about the remnant church? What about the remnant church? You know... Um, I really do believe that the church has a right to control the pulpit. They have a right to control what is being said. And I believe Scripture um, gives us that standard. Uh, Isaiah 8 says, To the law and to the prophets, if they speak not according to this, there's no light in them. Um, I'm not going to go into a whole big explanation of this, but, but one of the things that I start to see nowadays is that there's censorship creeping into our church into our church institutions and you know the areas that i really feel that this shouldn't be taking place i mean you'll see that when this censorship comes into place it's it's over um areas where there's no settled church doctrine it's um it's often driven by politics or, or pragmatism. And by pragmatism, I'd really say, you know, worldly pragmatism. 
So where did this kind of censorship actually start? Well, I'm not 100% certain, but, but I can go back a long ways. And uh, there's an interesting passage um, from the Council of Nice, uh, the, the records of that, which is 325 AD. Constantine had this to say. Constantine said this, the crimes of priests ought not to be made known to the multitude, lest they should become an occasion of offense or of sin. And he goes on and gives a long thing where he says about how it doesn't matter what the priest would do. I would, I would put my robe over it and not let anybody know. Let this be our little secret. But that is not the true church. Constantine's church is not the true church. I believe that the true church needs to be able to openly and discuss our family issues. We need to have an environment where everyone is allowed to speak and everyone is heard. I want to tell a little story. Um, I was in college. I have to give a little background to this story. I was in college. My mother, though, long before I went to college, she went to nursing school. And when she was in nursing school, she roomed with Anita Falkenberg. And Anita Falkenberg was the wife of Robert Falkenberg, our former general conference president. Well, my mom and Anita were very good friends, and they stayed lifelong friends. And because of that, Robert Falkenberg, he would come to Loma Linda, and he liked to do fundraising and different things like this long before he was general conference president. And when he'd come to Loma Linda, he made it a habit to stay at our house. And so... Um, my parents and the Falkenbergs have been friends before I was born, and I've known them my entire life. And so fast forward to college, and um, I, was, I was going to college, and, and, and um, I was at home one weekend, and Robert Falkenberg was there, and Robert Falkenberg liked to cook, and I liked to cook, and so we were cooking in the kitchen together. And we started to have a big discussion about church politics, and I won't go into what the substantive issue of the day was, but the, the conversation turned toward church authority. And I started to really get into it, you know, at this point I wasn't a lawyer yet, so I didn't have my, my arguing skills as I maybe have now. And um, I'm, I'm going at it, and, um, but I had a natural proclivity to argument. My, um, my parents left the room. I don't know where my mom went, but my dad, he went over to the other room, and I knew he was over there, but he definitely wasn't coming in to join this conversation. <laughs> and in the process, I will tell you this, Elder Falkenberg argued me into the ground. He won the argument. And I went and I talked to my dad the next day, and I said, Dad, you know what? I'm totally unconvinced. He, I, I told him, I said, my to my dad, he says, he beat me in that argument, but I am unchanged. And you know what my dad said. He said something that will stick with me forever. He said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And this explains something about the conscience and, and how it was there, because it was still working in me, but I couldn't enunciate it. Couldn't do it. I think this, is, this illustrates one of the biggest problems with censorship. Because essentially, we needed that debate. And we need the debate to be out there because me, as a, as a, as a 20-something-year-old kid, 
who can't enunciate it all, it's important for me to be able to sit down and watch the other people go at it, the people that are, that are older than me that understand what's going on, but I can't learn if I can't sit and watch that. And so for years, I actually thought about this. This bothered me for years. And eventually, I actually came up with a solution that would have advanced the argument. And uh, it was an argument about church authority and, and everything, and I can't remember everything that Elder Falkenberg said to me, but but this is the missing thing that, that I learned, and this is what I learned. I learned that, wait a second, Christ is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, then the only authority in the church is the Bible. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we shouldn't have church leadership and church authority or anything like that? No, we need that. The Bible's an orderly thing and explains that, right? But what it does mean for sure is that church authority should never be exercised arbitrarily. Never, ever. Now, I would love to be able to have the rest of that conversation with Elder Falkenberg, but sadly, he's not with us anymore, right? And I don't know, he still may win the argument, even with that counter move on my part. And I want to say this too, is that I remember what the substantive argument was about, what was going on in the church, and I've switched my mind. I'm now in full agreement with what he was actually arguing for. But this argument over authority is something that we still needed to have. And now I'm robbed of my ability because of death, to finish that conversation. But when we censor people, we do the same thing, and we cannot finish the conversation. Now, um, some of you may know me from some of my work that I do with the vaccines and the vaccine mandates. I don't want to go into a big, long thing about that. Um, I, I, you know, the summary, I'll just give the quick summary if there's anybody watching this who doesn't know the quick summary of the debate. Um, for those that, that have the, 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 the conscience that tells them not to take the vaccine, it, it's, it's a very simple argument. Almost every time it's the same argument. It goes like this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God's what is God's. Christ, you know, he's shown that coin and that's what he answers, right? And holds up the coin and shows them the image on the coin. Whose image is on that? Well, it's Caesar's, right? But whose image am I made in? God's, right? And then scripture goes on to tell us, hey, our body is the temple of God. So we're made in God's image. It's, 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 our body is the temple of God. This is, a, this is a religious issue. And so our body and how we care for it is a religious issue. And what I would say to this is that SDAs of all people should know this because we have the health message. And you know what's interesting about this? You know, sometimes people will say, well, vaccines aren't mentioned in the Bible, so therefore it has nothing to do with anything, right? Well, you look at the health message. It's also, it's developed from Scripture, but it's not explicitly in Scripture. No more than vaccines are explicitly in Scripture. But yet we see the health message there. We see it with Daniel and his, his three friends, the, the message there. Is it any wonder that there couldn't be someone in this church that could have an actual religious objection to the vaccine? But yet, yet many people in our religious liberty department, they just say, no, that's not, well, sorry, that, that's not possible. That's not possible. And this is so important because when it comes to things religion and things that are not religion, um, although our government admits openly that it is not capable of making religious determinations. It will look to the churches to see what might be religious and what isn't. 
And so when a church refuses to recognize this as being a religious issue, and Seventh-day Adventists of all people should not be doing this, when we refuse to do this, it forecloses anyone's ability to contest the vaccine. And so when you have this kind of suppression, it's led to another problem in the church, because then people start to ask, well, why is the church taking the position that it does? And then the next thing that happens is they start to say, well, maybe it has something to do with money. And so then we open up a debate about money, and touching money in the church is like touching a third rail. It's amazing how the debate about money has changed so much over the years. You know, um, I like to read A.T. Jones. A.T. Jones is really one of the main authors that I've read to cut my teeth to understand a real Protestant view of religious liberty. And he did amazing things. And, and we should be, be proud to have him in, in our heritage as a Seventh-day Adventist. When it came to money, he went to great lengths to show that any money that comes into the church from a government is going to corrupt it. And actually, this is something that religious liberty people have known forever. When you read about the history of the Catholic Church, it, secular historians will point to this. You, don't, you, know, you would have to be born yesterday not to understand this, right? A.T. Jones took it to such a length that A.T. Jones thought that no church should accept a tax deduction. And yet now we run around wondering, like, oh no, what if we lose our tax deduction, Right? And it goes on and on. Any little tiny thing. Now, I, you know, maybe it's open for debate as to whether tax deductions. I'm not going to say that A.T. Jones is, is, is right necessarily because taxes aren't exactly what they used to be. If you read what he was talking about taxes, it's different than what taxes are today. Um, our founding fathers that had the Boston Tea Party be rolling in their graves if they realized how much taxes we were paying. But... Because we've, we've, we've moved away from this complete fear of government money, now it becomes impossible to even talk about it without causing a huge ruckus. And I'm here to tell you, you know, this has been talked about in healthcare, but there's conflict of interest where there's money coming in in education. You look at the way the accreditation process works and the way government funds work, and don't think for a second that if someone says, I'm going to take away your tax-deductible status, your 501c3, that it won't have an effect on your religious beliefs. Now, by God's grace, it won't. But history tells us maybe, maybe not. If you look at Bob Jones University in 1983, they were threatened with taking away their, their, um, their tax deduction status. Why? Because they had a religious belief that the IRS and the federal government didn't like. You know what that belief was? And I'm not here to tell you whether the belief's a good one or a bad one. I'm not here to talk about that. Um, it's not one that we as Adventists share. But what they believed was that there shouldn't be interracial dating. But as soon as they said, we're going to take away your tax status, guess what? Bob Jones University said, no worries, we don't believe that anymore. So don't think this can't happen to us. Oh, time goes so fast. I hate that. Um, Revelation uh, 16, verse 15 says this. It says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. We're coming down to the end times. 
And Christ is saying, blessed is he that watcheth. Now, I'm here to tell you that as we come down to this time, we're living in a time when there's just misinformation going everywhere. But we also live in a time when the world is complex. I drive a car that I can't understand how it works. Now, I may understand a few things about it, but I can tell you there's some things I can't understand about it. I'm going to get on an airplane and I'm going to fly home on a plane that I, I can understand the theory behind it, but I cannot tell you anything about whether this plane is safe. I have to trust other people. I have to trust the airlines to say that this is safe. But, you know, one nice thing is I don't feel like I'm getting a whole lot of misinformation from the airline saying it's safe or someone else saying it's not safe. But we're living in a time where we have to watch and there's a clue as to what we need to be watching. We need to be watching where there's misinformation. We need to be watching where there's censorship because where you see misinformation and censorship taking place, I'm telling you, there's danger. And the reason why there's danger is because if someone cares enough to censor you, there is something up. And Christ says, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. And when I think about this keeping of his garments, I'm thinking about the robe of righteousness. So I believe by watching, this is a way to keep your salvation. Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And so now we cannot afford to just trust our teachers, our co-workers, even our pastors or our friends when it comes to truth. We have to pay attention. You know, um, one of the things that's important for us to do is to remember how the Lord has led in the past. And uh, I really appreciate this church. Um, what you had here for your Sabbath school was amazing. I, I love the fact that AFM is around the corner, and I love the fact that you're talking about sending missionaries out into the world. One of the things I like to do, um, if you see in my office, and you can see some of my Zoom channels, you'll see all these books behind me. I have a whole wall of books, and 90% of that wall that you see there is missionary stories. It's all the stories that, that the people wrote when they came back. And, uh, you know, there's a subgenre in the missionary story, and that's what I would call the persecuted Christian. You know, most, a lot of these are missionaries that went out to the mission field, but some of them are people that were what we would call the mission field. They're out there, they're in China, they're in Cuba, they're in Nazi Germany, and they're persecuted now. And these are some of the most amazing stories. You know, one of them actually illustrates what I'm talking about censorship and how censorship can be so damaging there's a book um a thousand shall fall how many of you read that yes i love to see the hands and i urge you all to, to read it <clears throat> the main character mr hosel became elder hosel is there he's been drafted in to fight for germany and everybody knows he's a christian and uh, they're, they're out fighting. They're over in someplace like Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan where the oil, there's big oil fields there. And Germany is trying to secure those oil fields. But the war's not going well. It's getting towards the end of the war. And his commanders recognize that this guy's a real Christian and they're curious to know what he knows. And so they call him in and they say, tell us what the scripture says. And he won't do it. Why? Because there's censorship in the Nazi regime. He can't do it. So what do they do? They take off their hats. 
And when they take off their hats, that's their way of saying, hey guys, censorship is all over, we just want the truth. Anything you say now, you know, when we put our hats back on, we'll forget it. You know, we're not going to say it to anybody, right? And that, that goes to another element of truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so what does Hazel do? He gives, when they take their hats off, he gives them a Bible study. And what did they do? They said, okay, this doesn't look good. I don't think Germany's going to ever rule Europe. We know how the war is going to end. And so they, set, they held back about half their fuel. And so at the very end of the day, what could they do? They could drive back to Berlin when they had to retreat. Everybody else was walking. And so you can see the power of truth, and it works everywhere. The, the idea that the truth so sets you free, that applies to, to both secular things and religious things. And so I would say that censorship is always wrong. I want to close with this story. Um, There's a story from Scripture. It's about John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been taken, he's been put in prison, and um, he's in the dungeon where Herod has his palace. It's, it's really interesting, I've, I've been blessed, I've been to this place. And uh, it's, it's, this, it's on this hill, and it overlooks out over the Dead Sea, back over towards uh, Israel. Amazing view. Very foreboding place out in the middle of nowhere. I'm not quite sure why Herod built some place all the way out there, but that's where he was. And what happens? Salome, the daughter of Herodias, she comes in and she dances. And Herod is just blown away by that. And he offers half the kingdom, up to half the kingdom, just what do you want, right? And so she goes back and talks to her mother and then she comes back and, and she says the most amazing thing. I can't imagine what kind of a, man, if, if a young woman said something like this to me, I would be just shocked. She says, I'll give me the head of John the Baptist. You know, but, but Scripture tells us something about what's going on there because Herod is sitting there and there's other men sitting with him and guess what they did they did nothing they did nothing and because of that Herod wants to show that he's going to honor his word and he thinks as a matter of honor even though he knows what he's doing is wrong and he knows he doesn't want to do it he executes John the Baptist. You know, I think about that story and I wonder about the other people that were there. What would have happened if one of them would have opened their mouth? Those people knew what was going on. They understood what the implications are. Now, there were some of them there that probably would appreciate John the Baptist's head on a platter just as much as the next one. But I'm sure that there were some there that knew better. But because they just sat there, Herod, I mean, John the Baptist, lost his head. And so I want to make an appeal to you. And there's two things that I want to appeal. The first thing I want to appeal to you is to speak out against censorship. Every time you see it, Every time you see something wrong happening, say something. Say something. Can you imagine just a simple word at the right time? 
what the difference it could make. And you may not be the leader of an institution. You may not be the leader of something, but we all know leaders. And leaders are always in these quandaries. And now, more than ever, there seems to be pressures put on people to do things. Say something. Just say something. Break the silence. Do not allow our society to censor you. And secondly, at least as important, there are people that are walking around that are in desperate need of the truth. And you need to find those people and you need to gently tell them the truth, whether it be something that is that society would have you censor or not. You must tell people the truth. We live in a dying world. And so I pray that you will not be like those who sat. And I have a belief that a lot more of us are going to be more like Stephen. And I pray for each one of us that the Lord will give us the words to say the wisdom to say it, and if it costs us our lives. Today, it may just cost us our livelihood, but today's the day when we need to build that spine. So many people don't have the spine, and so in these little things, let's build that spine, because Many of us will be called to be like Stephen, and I just pray for each one of us that we will be like Stephen, and may we reflect Christ just as Stephen did. Amen. Amen.